It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the. And there's a. Now that's a follow up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold, an ND Insider podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The spring semester at Notre Dame is almost here, and that means it's move-in weekend for Notre Dame's record-setting class of 14 early-enrolled freshmen. They have a chance to jumpstart their college careers and education in February, um, and then get a head start on their football careers this spring. Um, One of those 14 early enrollees is with us today. Rocco Spindler is a four-star offensive guard from Clarkson, Michigan, and an Under Armour All-American. Rocco, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is an honor. You bet. I I don't know how much of an honor it is, but we appreciate you (laughs) being with us. Uh, Let's start with enrolling early. Why was it important for you to do that? Um, You know, like you said, just a jump start to get me ready. you know, I get seven months uh, before the season starts, you know, no season. It's just lifting and, you know, academics. So as I, I believe it's a great balance. It's a great way to get me started and, you know, a great way to, you know, have me crack the, you know, hopefully the starting lineup. Rocco, what kind of do you know about how spring semester is going to be laid out? Because it's not still we're not yet in typical uh, you know, there's no spring break. They start a little bit later. What do you know about spring practice? What do you know about kind of what life, everyday life is going to be like for you? Yeah, um, you know, it's challenging. COVID has affected all of us. You know, it's changing every day. They said, um, you know, they haven't really gave us, you know, too much in advance to, you know, what to expect. But, you know, we're going to go to class every day. Um, you know, they schedule that out. So hopefully um, it stays in person. You know, that's going to help all of us out. Um, and then, you know, we're lifting, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, um, you know, and then back Thursday, Friday, getting after it. And, um, you know, it's going to be every week. And then, um, you know, uh, after like a four to six week program, you know, you get a week off and then you go right back in, right back at it again. Um, and then when spring ball comes around, you start, you know, doing some drills some a little bit practicing and, you know, really uh, see who the top guys are. And they haven't they haven't given you any idea about the time frame of spring practice yet. Yeah, not 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 yet, because you yeah. know NCAA starts to you know come in with that. Right, Rocco, you you mentioned getting here and having a chance to potentially start. How realistic do you feel like that is, and what do you feel like you need to do to make that a possibility? I believe I have a great shy, great opportunity to do it. You know, you know I know it's not going to be given to me. Um, you know, I got to work for it and. You know, I really got to separate myself from the rest of the pack. And, you know, yeah, I might be a true freshman, but, you know, I got to have a different mindset than the rest of the guys. You know, I'm going to be competing against, you know, first round draft picks, um, you know, on Saturday nights and, you know, the best guy plays. And, you know, the coaches believe I'm developed enough 
and, you know, ready to go, you know, they'll put me out there. And, you know, if they feel like I need, you know, take this as a red shirt year, you know, I'll take it as a red shirt year. And, you know, red shirt doesn't mean I'm not good enough. It just want me to, you know, not lose a year, but, you know, really gain something out of it. You know, Rocco, at a lot of college football programs, once you kind of get to campus, offensive linemen become anonymous. And that's not how it is at Notre Dame. There's a lot of expectations, scrutiny, and people are looking for the next Quentin Nelson. <laughs> and I wondered if you've if you've ever kind of watched film of him. I know, I, I mean, obviously you got your own style and so forth, but I wonder if you study people like Quentin Nelson. Um, you know, no doubt about it. Quentin Nelson is the best offensive lineman, you know, to probably come out of Notre Dame and, and he's the best in the NFL. Um, you know, he's the one and only, no one's ever going to be like Quentin Nelson. Um, you know, but me, I got my own little style and I believe I'm going to be the next Rocco Spindler. And, you know, I like to resemble myself with, you know, his pancakes, you know, his dry blocks, you know, really, you know, getting after guys in that mentality aspect of it. And, you know, he's his own player. I'm my uh, own player. And, you know, hopefully, you know, I can be just as great, maybe even better than him. And, you know, I just said, I have an honor, the guy that, you know, kind of paved the way at Notre Dame. When, when my son played high school football, you know, we would see his stats eventually and, but my, his, my wife, his mom kept stats and she'd come up like 31 tackles. And, and I thought maybe she was keeping your stats. Cause I see 84 pancakes in eight games. That's incredible. What are you doing? Just yeah, um, plowing over people. You know, I like, what I like to say is, you know, I, I was a wrestler for like 14 years and, you know, I got a great feel, like, un- like understanding when a guy shifts his body weight this way on a split second, because in wrestling, that's how it is on the mat. Cause you know, if you step here, he might ankle pick you there. And, um, you know, I have that feel against the guy, you know, he's pressing against me, I'm pressing against him. And, um, you know, I got that killer instinct. It's killer be killed in the trenches. And, um, you know, for me, I just want to drive that guy out of there against his will, go 10, 15 yards and just put him on his back because, you know, I might not score touchdowns. I might not throw, you know, 400 yards passing. You know, I might not get that. But, you know, if I can you know, accomplish this by just putting him on his back and really just get all hyped up and stuff like that, then, you know, I, I did my job and, you know, create a hole for the running back to run. What's what's the satisfaction that comes with that? Is that is that part of what drives you? Just the, sort of the feeling that comes with putting a guy it, on his it back. It kind of makes you. It kind of makes you feel like you're the man. You're like, I just took a 300 pound dude against his will and just drove his ass back. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'll tell you, your whole family looks like there was there's a video that came out on signing day. And I said, why can't I live next door to these people? <laughs> um, I mean, they, they, can you just kind of fill us in on what this journey's been like with your family? I want to talk about your grandpa later, but your parents and your sisters and so forth, because it just feels like it's not just they're supportive. It's like a party. Um, yeah, you know, I kind of got this, uh, you know, recruiting spiel that I always talk about, um, you know, when the coaches come in and they want to know about your family and everything. And so, you know, we started off my dad, you know, high school All-American, one of the best defensive tackles, uh, went to Pitt All-American there and then got drafted by the Lions. So he had his, you know, career. He really kind of, you know, set the foundation on like what this family was going to be like. And and then, you know, you go to my, you know, my oldest sister, Gabriella, um, you know, went to West Point uh, in high school. She was one of the top players uh, in high school for tennis. 
uh, went to West Point. She uh, she graduated from airborne schools where they, you know, drop jump out of the ho- uh, the, the planes, parachute down. And then she uh, she was like, hey, I'm going to go try air assault school. And like I'm like 12. I'm like, dude, my sister's a badass. And she jumps out of the, you know, the helicopters and, you know, with the rope and they have to do all those cool things. And then she was like, you know, what? I'm going to go uh, graduate from Pathfinder school. And now they drop you like in the middle of no- nowhere um, and wow. like, miles away from like base. And you got to find your way back with just like a compass and a pot. And, you know, and she graduated from that. And I think the only one she has left to do is Army Ranger School. I don't know if she's going to do that one um, just because then you're more on the front line, stuff like that. Um, and she kind of wants to be more safe and, you know, probably get out of the Army uh, in the next couple of years. Um, but to have a sister like that, you know, is like the firstborn, you know, that's huge shoes to fill. And, you know, she won <laughs> countless of, you know, matches at West Point as one of the top players there. And so she kind of said, okay, guys, you know, you got to kind of either top me or be right, right next to me. And then you go to my next sister, Dominique. And, you know, she was, she was a great athlete and she was like, listen, she was like, you know, I, I like to compete, but I like to compete in modeling. And I would say she kind of, gets the second best looks i say i have the best looks um (laughs) now she goes all around the world greece italy all these places california she was just like in miami the other day just modeling for these big companies like lululemon stuff like that and she's just living her life you know in new york city and you know she really you know took the different road but still competing in just in a different way and you know she's done a tremendous job with herself and you know really proud of her and then, you you know, you go to Isabel and Isabel was also, so she graduated high school early, like me, she's a mid-year and she was one of the top players um, in the state for tennis and in the country. And she went to Cleveland state and now she won, I think she's the most winningest player in Cleveland state history. She won wow. like, like three or four conference championships. She was the number one singles, number one doubles. She's, I think she's probably going to be in the hall of fame as one of the best to ever do it. And then she graduated from college early. She's now at Carthage college, um, getting her, um, her master's paid for in business. And, you know, she's really, you know, striving for big goals. And then there's me and I'm like, damn, I'm like, I got to compete against that now. Uh-huh. And, you know, you know, I'm trying to do my thing. Um, but, you know, my mom, she's, you know, she really, you know, set the standard. You know, she, we call her the general around here. You know, she might not have all these accolades, but listen, she's the one that, you know, helped us get there and she's the chief around here. So we couldn't have done it without my mom. So that's, that's how it is around here. Yeah, that's cool. You guys are busy. I understand you also have a, a family farm. How, how did that shape your worth work ethic and 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 how does that sort of reflect it on the football field yeah so you know from a young age you know my grandpa taught me you know hunting fishing stuff like that my uh, my dad as well and you know you know you gotta you know pick up the big you know 100 pound bags of corn you gotta put the seed in the cedar um you know gotta get the rototiller on and you know stuff like that you know working with you know engineering things like that and you know tractors you know four wheelers and you really have to you know use your mind and stuff like that but you know it's also hard work and you know it's it's just a hobby of mine you know hunting fishing doing those things to you know get away from football and you know come here you know especially you know when I was about to commit to Notre Dame and you know all the press and you know reporters are all bugging me I'm like man I'm like I need to get away from here so don't go to the farm 
and, you know, just really relax, but also kind of be who I am, you know, yeah, I might be a great football player, but, you know, I love being in the outdoors and hanging with friends and family and, you know, just, you know, living life. Well, I got to ask you about your grandpa. Um, You know, my grandpa on my mom's side immigrated from Italy when he was 16. He was orphaned. He came over here on a boat, made 20 cents a day working at a bakery and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he was my hero growing up and I've got six grandkids. And so I get the grandpa thing. And, And when you told that story at your signing day thing, you know, it was waterworks here, but, but what, can you kind of, you know, as you starting your Notre Dame career now, what's your thoughts about your grandpa's influence on your life and, and also influence on your destination ending up at Notre Dame? Um, you know, when I was a young boy, um, my grandpa, you know, he's my biggest role model. You know, he grew up very poor, um, you know, in Scranton, PA. You know, his both of his parents passed away at an early age. He had to take care of his siblings uh, just at 16 and then had my uncle when he was 17. So he was really, you know, challenged with that aspect. And, you know, he worked in a factory most of his life. And, you know, he kind of instilled in our family from my father, uncles, aunts, um, you know, hard work and dedication and where you want to be in life. And, you know, he just put just enough, uh, you know, food on the table for my for my dad. And, you know, my dad took that aspect and gave it to us on, you know, hard work and that dedication. So, you know, we all owe it to our grandfather, um, you know, through giving, you know, getting through those tough times. And, you know, my grandpa, you know, he always was a big Notre Dame guy. Um, you know, I believe he just loved the traditions it offered. And, you know, he wanted me, he first, he wanted my dad to go there, but he didn't really push him, you know, too hard. He wanted him to create his own path. And then when he said he's going to pay, he was like, oh, maybe I should have pushed him a little bit harder. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, you know, he saw me on starting to develop on, you know, being a great football player. And he was like, Hey, he was like, you know, second go around. I might, I might have to push him a little bit harder. And, you know, when I was young and he said, listen, he was like, he was like my dream is for you to, you know, play at the University of Notre Dame. And I'm like five. I'm like, okay, Grandpa, you know, I'll, I'll play there. Um, I'll do it just for you. And I kind of made him a promise, not thinking I was going to go there. And then, you know, as time went on, I became, you know, who I am now. And, um, you know, right before he passed away, it was his last week. And, um, you know, I saw him, he got real sick. And, you know, you know, I hung out with him that whole week. And this was – a year before I was going to commit. So I had no idea still, um, but it was going to look like it was going to be Notre Dame and the rest of those schools I had. And, you know, everybody walked out of that room the last time we saw him. And, you know, I, I was the last one to leave. And, you know, he looked at me, he's like, good luck Rocco. And, you know, I knew he wasn't going to be there for my commitment day. And, um, you know, I told him, Grandpa, you know, I'm going to commit to the University of Notre Dame as like, as that last little party thing, not thinking I was actually going to go, uh, you know, there I didn't have that in my mindset yet, but just, uh, you know, as a little piece for him to go away because I knew he wasn't going to see that. And, you know, he shook his head. He shook my hand. And he says, you're making a great decision for the rest of your life. He says, good luck. Go get him. And, you know, that was it. And, you know, and, you know, a year from that, um, you know, I, I committed to Notre Dame and, you know, everything fell in place and, you know, it was the best decision of my life. 
And, you know, now going forward, I know he'll be with me, you know, every step of the way, like I said, and, you know, touchdown Jesus. And, you know, hopefully maybe I get to score one touchdown. That'd be great. Give him a little salute, but, you know, pancake and doing those things. You know, that, that's how I get out of it. And, you know, I know he'll be lining up with me and, you know, knocking those dudes off the ball. Rocco, certainly Notre Dame had to still convince you to come to Notre Dame and, I imagine the the rich history on the offensive line had played a role in that. How did you get a sense for what that means for the current players and how it impacts them and then will impact you? Um, you know, they recruited the, you know, the shit out of me, I would say, you know, they really, they went out of it, man. It's, it was a battle between a bunch of schools and, you know, I believe Notre Dame is O-line you, no doubt about it. Um, you know, you see what they've done with McGlinchey, Quentin Nelson, Ronnie Stanley, Nick Martin, Zach Martin, all those dudes, you, dude, that's an all pro offense there. He, they, look at the NFL and what they're doing right now. And so they use that as like their foundation and, you know, they they showed me that I can do this exact same thing because they showed me the film of McGlinchey and Quentin. And when they were in high school and I'm in high school, and the same two steps that me and him have and our punch and stuff like that. And, you know, that really showed me that I can do this and, you know, they're going to develop me on, you know, my player, my skills and to, to be in a, hopefully an all pro and all American in college and, you know, hopefully go on and you know have a great career. So, you know, they really kind of captured that recruiting process. What was your connection like with Jeff Quinn? You know, Harry Heastan was so revered and so forth, and Jeff has, you know, really worked hard to not only build on what Harry did, but kind of have his own identity. So what was what was that relationship? What's it like with you and Jeff Quinn? You know, the first time I ever met him, I was like, man, I'm like, this guy reminds me of like a mafia type of dude. Like, this is like a Jersey Bulldog, man. I'm like, this guy is cool because he had his own little like – touch to you know talking and stuff like that and he's always engaging and you know the thing that stuck out you know most of me through the process was you know he cared about you as an individual he didn't care that you're a great you know football player he didn't care that you, the number on your back he cared about you your family you know he said hey how's uh your mom and dad doing it every time he didn't say hey how'd the game go you know he always wanted to know about you know your family first then football and, you know, that's what stuck out with me because, you know, I don't want to just go to a school where, the hey, it's football only, no education, and, you know, here, go out there and, hey, get hurt, okay, whatever. Um, you know, he really cares about you, and, you know, he's a great dude, and, you know, I know he's going to coach me on the field, but also be like a father to me off the field. And and he was a former wrestler, too. Yeah, so we had that. Listen, we all, I think we talked about wrestling more than we talked about football. That's That's just how it is with him. Um, Rocco, obviously with your dad playing football, I, I imagine from an early age, you, you knew you wanted to play football and liked football, but when did you realize that you were good at football? When did that sort of set in? And that was something that maybe would be a potential path for you. Um, you know, peewee football was tough because, you know, I was, I was almost overweight the whole time. Cause they had like a, the weight limit. I think that's the worst rule, um, ever. Um, so I didn't really get to play that much. Um, because I was always trying to cut weight and stuff like that. But I would probably say, you know, seventh, eighth grade was really where I start to make my strides. I started training in the off season. I started, you know, maybe not lifting weights as much because I didn't want to stunt my growth. Um, but, you know, conditioning, training, um, you know, footwork, agility, stuff like that. And then those off season workouts really helped me for that season. And I was like, man, I'm like, 
I just made huge strides in the season. I'm like, if I keep doing this, I'm like, well, where will it take me? And then, you know, freshman year came around and, you know, I started, you know, all the way up to now, every single game, both ways. And, you know, that's where I really kind of made my, you know, my stand. Did you, I mean, your defensive stats are off the charts too. Did you think at all about doing that? Yeah, freshman year, I thought I was going to be like the next J.J. Watt or something okay. like that. And then as I got bigger, you know, in the waist and all that, came more of Phil. I was an offensive lineman, and I saw him like, damn, like these guys are some fast dudes. I'm like, yeah, I could probably be a good, you know, nose guard. But, you know, if I want to really make a career out of it, you know, probably offensive line would probably be the best, you know, way for me. Um, but, you know, my dad said, hey, listen, he was like, he was like, yeah, you might not sack guys, you know, if you play in college and stuff like that. But if you can translate that mentality, I'm mean, wanting to, you know, sack the quarterback, get the running back onto the offensive line on the off- offensive side of the ball, you know, you'll be a killer. And, you know, that's what I did going into my sophomore year. And, you know, I went after it. Rocco, a lot of the top high school offensive linemen tend to play offensive tackle and want to be offensive tackles when they get to college and, and sort of know that's kind of – I mean, that's sort of the prestigious position on the offensive line is playing tackle, but certainly like Quentin Nelson has made a, made a name for himself being a guard. What, what motivates you? What drives you? Why, why do you feel like being an offensive guard is just as valuable? And and how do you feel like you can sort of stand out? I think, I think anybody can play tackle, to be honest, if you can play tackle, then not every, if everybody can, every offensive guard can play tackle, but not every tackle can play guard because the guard, you know, you line up pretty much 90% of your body weight on your hands and you're just driving off the ball and just ramming somebody on tackle. You, you want to be a little bit more, you know, footwork kind of catching guys. And, you know, I call it the little pretty boy, you know, side, <laughs> you know, if, you know, if say God forbid somebody gets hurt and, you know, I have to play tackle. Yeah. I'll play tackle, but I'll play with that same kind of, you know, style as, you know, I'm trying to, you know, lay you out, you know, I'm not the guy, um, you know, I, like the ballerina type to catch guys and stuff like that. And you know, I'm not the big passing type. I want to line up and let coach run the damn ball and let's go. Let's get two, three yards to just keep driving and, you know, just wear down the defense. And, you know, that's my style of game. And I believe with coach Reese and all that things, you know, they're going to start to run the ball downhill and, you know, occasionally step back and, you know, throw it to, you know, Lorenzo styles and stuff like that. I believe that's the offense that, you know, I can see in our future. Okay, off topic from football is food. I know that you mentioned that in a few places that that's one of your favorite things. And you did some great reviews of restaurants up in your area. Are there any food places that you've scouted out in South Bend that you can't wait to put them out of business? Uh, I was I haven't tried the Rocco's place yet, so hopefully, you know, me and Rocco in that place, you know, called Rocco's. I'd you know I'd like to try that place. Um, Saturday, I'm going to the corn dance tavern. I heard they got a great review there and, you know, just, you know, making my way from either South Bend or Mishawaka and stuff like that. You know, I'm really gonna, you know, try everything and give it a, you know, an honest review and, you know, hopefully just make connections with people, man. You know, I love food, but, you know, I love, you know, getting to know people who, you know, either make the food or own the place. And, you know, that's just who I am. That's cool. Gabriel Rubio has, has spent a lot of time in South Bend, so hit him up for any advice. Oh, trust me, I've already been texting. Hey, man, uh, did you try this place yet? Oh, it was okay. <laughs> yeah. 
what are you what are you most nervous about and what are you most excited about when it comes to early enrolling? Um, you know, nervous, you know, it's a new chapter. Um, you know, you don't really know what to expect. You know, high school, you know, yeah, I was kind of the biggest dude, um, you know, on my team and stuff like that. And now I'm gonna be guys that are either bigger than me, stronger than me, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, having that mindset, you know, just going in every day and getting after it. Um, is, you know, a way to handle it. But, you know, academics, Notre Dame's, you know, one of the most toughest universities out there. And, you know, you just got to, you know, really be time management organize, organized and, you know, really do, you know, great things in the classroom. So I guess, you know, academics and that stuff. But, you know, Notre Dame has, you know, great resources. Last one for me, and you might have mentioned it earlier, but I missed it. Um, who Who's going to be your roommate? Blake Fisher. Okay, Blake Fisher. Okay. Yep. Do you guys know each other pretty well? Yeah, me and him are good buddies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But Rocco, last one for me. You talked about how you, you kind of told your grandpa that you'd go to Notre Dame and you weren't necessarily even sure that you would go to Notre Dame at that point. Did you did you ever doubt at any moment that you would end up at Notre Dame? And what was that moment that you sort of realized, okay, this is what I'm gonna do, this is what I'm meant to do? Um you know, time went on and, you know, everything kind of fell in its place. Um, you know, everybody kept recruiting and you know, everything. And, you know, with every new offer, I was like, hey, man, I might commit there. With another offer, I'm like, hey, I might commit there. Uh, but, you know, always in the back of my head, you know, I, I said I was going to go there. And, um, you know, everything kind of fell in place. You know, I saw that Coach Kelly was signing contracts to stay there longer. So it was, you know, Quinn and I knew – you know, the foundation was the biggest thing. You know, I don't want to be part of a rebuilding program. You know, I want to have something established there, but, you know, they're going to keep, you know, getting better and staying there as well. And, you know, I want them to develop me, you know, either in the classroom, on the field, into a great NFL player, um, you know, great networking. I believe Notre Dame has the best at that. And also, you know, Mendoza, you know, one of the best top business schools in the country. So, you know, everything kind of fell in its place on what I was looking for. And I was like, I believe Notre Dame is the best opportunity. All right, Rocco, that's all we have for you. I really appreciate you taking time to join us and uh, best of luck moving in this weekend and, and starting your Notre Dame career. Thank you guys so much. This was an honor. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys, are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First question we have is from at IrishFan102. At this point, do you expect all current coaches to be on the staff next year? Any more departures? Well, we don't have all of them hired yet. There's still a safety coach hire, and I think we're going to see that come to a resolution here fairly soon next week. I think, uh, you know, there had been some coaches out of the office, and they wanted to get everybody in the office so everybody would have a chance to meet that person, interview that person and so forth. So, I mean, some people on vacations and stuff. So uh, that should be coming along. You know, the thing about those kind of things are, I, I don't expect there to be another um, another change in the coaching staff, but sometimes there's a late opening somewhere and it's somebody that's worked with somebody on the staff before. And sometimes you'll get a surprise like that. I know, um, today, Bruce Feldman mentioned Marcus Freeman as a possible head coach at UCF. Now, I don't see that, um, but 
I think UCF will probably reach out to them and see if there's interest. So, but I don't expect that to materialize. Yeah. I think the way I would say is like currently, yes, I expect the current coaches to be on staff next year, but you can never really assume that until the coaching carousel sort of stops spinning and um, the UCF job could take a coach from somewhere else that someone may have a connection to. And so it, it's a domino effect when it comes to that. So you never really know like how one move will impact other moves. So certainly more could change. I'm not anticipating anything right now, but um, there's um, still an opportunity for changes to happen. Um, but a lot and most of the college football jobs and even now NFL jobs seem to have fallen into place. So that should slow things down and limit the opportunities for, for changes moving forward. Next question is from Dio Carroll one. I assumed ND will look to add more experience from the transfer portal. How many, what positions and before or after spring practice? Well, since class starts Wednesday, it's going to be hard to add them in time for spring practice right. because they, you know, they, they would be behind on school and I, it would be very, very difficult to do that. I think there might be one exception with that. If Notre Dame decides they have a mutual interest with Mike Jones Jr. from Clemson, the linebacker, I don't see him as a great fit unless they're thinking about him as a rover um, and they are not confident that the other rovers will be up to speed. And that's Paul Mawala, Isaiah Pryor, and and Prince Kali, uh, I mean, he's a, a good enough player that you want to vet that. But I'm not saying that that they would end up with him. But as far as the other positions, I think that's post-spring. And you're also dealing with the scholarship math. You know, Notre Dame is allowed to be at 87 this year because of Heinish and Dorr. Um, those guys don't count against the 85, so they're on scholarship. It's 87. And Notre Dame's still about three over right now. So a lot of it depends on that. And a lot of it is they want to evaluate their own guys first. You know, I would say the positions that I think are the ones that are going to get the, the biggest look would be cornerback first. I think they need to look at a defensive end. Um, they're really young at defensive end once they get past the first few people. And even the, even then, I mean, Botello is going to be a second stringer and he's a true sophomore. And then uh, I still think you may want to look at safety for some depth because again, I'm not sure how, once you get past the first three safeties, how game ready any of those safeties are, but you know, Justin Walters is here. So they're going to get a look at him in the spring and see how ready he is. Those would be the positions I would think. Yeah, the, the, the transfer portal works in sort of two different ways where you have a clear need and you're looking to see if there's someone in the transfer portal that would fit that need. And then, too, if the, there's guys that you feel are clear talent upgrades, um, and even if that's not necessarily a position of the utmost need, then maybe you pursue that person. I think a Mike Jones Jr. would fall into that category. I'm not sure, sure how Notre Dame feels about what how much of an upgrade he is versus – the linebackers on their roster and certainly with the being a new linebackers coach, they're all sort of starting from a clean slate. So we don't necessarily know what Marcus Freeman thinks of Notre Dame's linebacking group and, and, and how the roles will sort of play out in his, in his defense. So I think that is worth, worth tracking to see if, if Notre Dame gets involved there. And, but yeah, I think you, I, you sort of nailed the other positions that they would be interested in. I, I'm 
I would imagine there were probably, in my understanding, there was there there was there was some activity when it came to safeties while Houston Griffith appeared to be on his way out, and now that he's staying, does that limit the need for safety? I think cornerback is always probably going to be a need, and we'll, they'll see if they can find fits there um, that makes sense at, at Notre Dame. So, um, if I had to put a number on it, I would say it would add maybe two or three guys. Um, so, but I. I it's, it's hard to sort of pin a number down to it because it, it's always in flux and it, it's so much so much reliant on whether you can find guys that want to come here and, and make sense and are good enough to play here versus like just taking a guy to take a guy because that isn't necessarily what um, can be of the most value to your program. Next question is from Justin at The Real Putnam. We talk about ND and QB recruiting, but it seems we've brought in guys but can't develop them more than any other position. How much responsibility does Brian Kelly have with the inability to develop quarterbacks? Um, I would say that a lot of it is his responsibility. I mean, it's his vision in terms of how quarterbacks are developed. It's his, he's hired the offensive coordinators, the play callers, the quarterbacks coach. Um, and Brian's in-game handling of quarterbacks has sometimes come into question, especially earlier in his time at Notre Dame. So I would say there's a lot on his shoulders and he has something to prove in that area. And I think to a certain extent, Tommy Reese does too. I mean, Ian Book turned out to be a really good quarterback, but Brandon Wimbush didn't develop, you know, at the end of his career. And that may have more to do with Chip Long than it did Tommy Reese. But Phil Dracovic, again, that could be more Chip Long than Tommy Reese. But we've, we need to see not only whoever the starter is develop, we need to see backups develop too. And I think that's an area of this program that still has a proving point. And I think quarterback recruiting needs to upgrade. I think Notre Dame needs to aim higher in terms of prospects, um, you know, you might not get them, but I think they need to go after people that they think are fit fits for their program, but are also very highly coveted quarterbacks that could play in the NFL and that could win you a national championship. Yeah. I, I, I think regardless of how we feel, if we have disagreements on, on to what extent Brian Kelly has been able to develop or not develop quarterbacks. I think the responsibility falls mainly on him. And certainly I think that there's responsibility to be shared with that, but it's his program and he needs to, obviously it's the most important position. So he, it has to be a priority for him. And um, I, some responsibility has to fall on the player too. There's gotta be some, uh, I mean, even with Phil Dracovic, if he stays, maybe he does develop better um, and, and is in a position to become the starter this this year. But obviously, he wanted to leave and get, start this past year, and that that made sense for him. Um, so I, I I've mentioned in the past that none of Brian Kelly's quarterbacks have been better post Notre Dame. Um, I think Phil, for Phil Dracovic can be the exception to that, um, but he also sort of left before he had the chance to prove that on the playing field at Notre Dame. Um, so. Um, and I, I still would would argue that Ian Book was a better fit for Notre Dame's offense this past season than Phil Dracovic would have been. People might not agree with that view, um, but that that is my my view of sort of 
Ian's fit with the talent that was around him versus what Phil would have needed to be successful um, in, in his, in his first year as a starter. Um, in terms of the developing quarterbacks, Brandon Wimbush is the guy that befuddles me the most. I don't understand how he didn't become a better quarterback. And I, I don't know that I'll ever understand it. Um, so that, that has to fall on Brian Kelly. They have to do a better job there. Um, but beyond Brandon and, and probably Phil, I don't know that you can say, wow, Notre Dame really recruited. Like these guys were like for, for sure things as quarterback. And even like Phil Dracovic, I remember when he was down at the army bowl, I had someone tell me that, and I'm not sure how, how much they truly believe this, or they were just like very disappointed with how Phil Dracovic played that week. But like, I wouldn't be surprised if Phil Dracovic became a tight end by the end of his career. Like that's, like that's how like volatile the opinions on these top quarterback recruits can be sometimes. And I think everyone thought Tyler Buckner was a home run. And then later on when he has a bad camp, everyone's like, well, well, I don't know what Tyler Buckner's going to be. And so it's, it's a hard position to sort of figure out. Notre Dame has to bring in more of those. You got to bring in more of those top guys and fail with them because that's a better position to be in than to have guys that you're, you're recruiting over. I don't know that that's, uh, a, a, the best position that they need to be in. So I think that they have to recruit better at the quarterback position and they haven't recruited well enough at that position. Um, whether that was before Tommy Reese was the quarterback's coach or since he's been the quarterback's coach. So I, I don't know if they were too scarred by the Garner Keel fiasco for a while. And that maybe impacted how they, how they recruited quarterbacks. Um, but if Brian Kelly is going to invest more in recruiting overall, I think it has to start at the quarterback position as well. Right, and Gunnar Keel didn't get better when he left to go to Cincinnati. Gunnar left before he even had a chance right. at Notre Dame. Um, and then you could argue that Kelly inherited a five-star quarterback in Dane Christ. And I'll tell you what, Dane Christ may be the finest human being that I've met while I but, – but he was not the same quarterback after two knee surgeries, at least not mentally. Um, and, and I'm not saying that he wasn't tough mentally. I just think – he, those two surgeries kind of eroded who he was, but I'd take him any day in any walk of life and have him as my partner in business or whatever. And, and I'm sure he would keep me afloat. Uh, but, but it just didn't work out for him. Even when he went back to, when he went to Kansas reunited with Charlie, he got beat out at Kansas because again, he wasn't the same guy. So I don't know. I wouldn't put that one on Brian Kelly. As long as you don't uh, replace me with Dane Chris as your podcast partner, I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> he was a guest on here one time, and I'm telling you, he was, he was pretty insightful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, next question is from Adam Hanaski from, at CPU2015. Just discussed the lack of recruiting effort by Brian Kelly with Tyson Ford and recruiting in general in comparison to other elite head coaches. Please don't say this is known. BK is a closer. BK is busy with other ND issues. He recruited F Freeman or any other spin. Eyes on your own paper. <laughs> uh, you know, I I don't like questions where people tell me how to answer what it. Not to say that's <laughs> off putting, and there's some truth to all those things. But let's zero in on what happened with Tyson Ford, and I'm not sure that we ha any of us have the entire story because we haven't talked to Brian about it. Um, I, I will say that um, during some of the crucial time with Tyson Ford was when Brian was in, you know, in the process of hiring Marcus Freeman and also getting ready for Alabama. However, 
Tyson Ford got an offer in April. And, and so there was plenty of opportunity for Brian and Tyson to have a relationship. My question is, and there should have been, and I'll absolutely say that. My question is, though, did someone ask Brian to jump in at these critical junctures? And he said, no, I got a golf game. Or, <laughs> or was it a lack of organization, a lack of saying, hey, Brian, I feel like you need to get to know this guy. He's at the top of our board uh, as a defensive end. We feel like we're in good position with him, but we feel like a relationship with you would enhance that. So that's really, I think, what you kind of have to get to the bottom of and what their response is to that. They need to learn from this. They can't brush it off as just an anecdotal kind of aberration uh, because it can't happen with a player of that caliber. It can't happen with anybody that they want to eventually sign. So I, I hope I gave you part of the answer that you wanted at least. I feel like I'm apologizing here, but um, I think that's the that's the critical part of this. When I had a one-on-one with Brian in July, we talked about his change in his recruiting um, role, and, and he described it to me as being available at critical junctures. You know, it wasn't like he was going to text the kid every day or text all the kids, all – hundred or whatever that they had on the hook. Uh, but that at critical junctures, he would be brought in and he seemed sincere about it. So that was my experience. That's the last time I talked to him about his changing role in recruiting. Yeah. I, I can go a lot of different ways on this. Like to me, I, 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 when you tell me to don't give you spin, that's insulting to me because it, to me, it's saying that you don't trust my opinion and why, like the, the motivations behind my opinion, which there, I have no other reason to tell you the truth. Like that's my job is to tell you what, and if you're asking me a question, I'm going to tell you my opinion. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you someone else's opinion. And if I do, I will tell you that that's from their perspective and not my perspective. Yeah. Um, we go, don't tell me not to give you any spin. I'll give you all the spin I want. <laughs> so like, as it relates to Tyson Ford, I'm not as familiar on everything that went with. I, I haven't talked to Tyson Ford. That reporting came from a story that P, Pete Sampson of the Athletic did, um, and, and speaking with Tyson Ford about how many times he had been in, top, in touch with with Brian Kelly. Um, and I also think it's worth noting, like if Brian Kelly didn't have any contact with him, it didn't prevent Notre Dame from getting his commitment. So maybe there was. I, I would need to know more. Was there a read that Brian Kelly's impact, like he wouldn't impact his recruitment because? Maybe someone else needed to talk to him. Was there a belief that Notre Dame wasn't in on him or wasn't going to be able to get his commitment? And so they sort of maybe fell off there and didn't put as much effort into it. And Marcus Freeman sort of renewed that effort. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of things that could go into the Tyson Ford recruitment, but I think this is a bigger question beyond just Tyson Ford. And I think we've, we've sort of discussed that. And I, I feel like we've been as pretty straightforward as you can be with, I mean, Carter Carls did the story last year about how there were guys that felt like, didn't communicate Brian Kelly didn't communicate enough with them and that could have maybe changed their recruitment. I mean, certainly there's, there's every story is going to have its own complexities and, and opinions that might not be the same from each side of it, but I've long held the belief that Brian Kelly isn't a, an elite recruiter. Um, I covered recruiting for years and that I, I would never would have argued that Brian Kelly was in the same class as urban Meyer or Nick Saban um, and guys at that level when it came to recruiting. Um, and as soon as he made those comments before the, 
bowl game last year, we, we talked about um, uh, if, if Brian Kelly wants to have a top five class, then it starts with him. He has to be the, he needs to be a big part of that changing um, and his involvement needs to be a big part of that. So I don't, I don't know how else to sort of describe it. <laughs> then I think it's pretty blunt and I don't know where the spin comes when, when, as it relates to that. Um, and so he needs to be more involved with that and he needs to find a way um, that best that he can best impact the recruit recruitment. Now, Brian Kelly is, I don't think he's going to have contact with every kid that Notre Dame offers, but if Notre Dame really wants a kid, they need to make sure he is involved in some way and make sure that he is accessible to him. Because I think beyond just whether or not they have had contact with him, the kids need to believe that they can contact him. And if they want to, if there's something that they need the head coach to address that they have access to him. And some kids might not feel the need for that. And, um, but Notre Dame needs to communicate that and have a process to sort of facilitate that. Um, and, and maybe that's a, a way that they can improve things moving forward. Right. And, and again, they need to come out of this and, and any of these, how can we get better? How can we improve? But we just had another anecdote with our guest Rocco Spindler, where he said Notre Dame recruited the crap out, recruited the crap out of him. Right. So, you know, there wasn't that story of, of, you know, Brian Kelly being on the golf course or people thinking he was on the golf course. The other thing, and I'm not trying to spin this, is, you know, you haven't had visits. And, and they did finally, Notre Dame was able to, I think, get to a place with their virtual recruiting where they felt very comfortable, but they had to pivot to that. Now, if, if Tyson Ford had visited campus, he would have met Brian Kelly. You know, there weren't there weren't campus visits. Now, Notre Dame needed to do some things virtually with Brian Kelly, and, and I'm sure they will until this dead period ends. But I think if there had been a normal course of unofficial official visits, you know, Brian Kelly and Tyson Ford would have had a relationship. So, um, but again, you can always here, – here's one other thing. I was talking to somebody in the recruiting business just kind of – shooting the breeze. This wasn't for a story, so I'm not going to name who it is. But I also think that it's important that the coordinators have a vision of who they want and be pretty aggressive in terms of their relationships with with the players. And I, I kind of put it in a column that I did earlier this week on Tommy Reese's shoulders. You know, Marcus Freeman is identifying the guys he wants in his defense. He's going after them. He's aiming high. And I think Tommy Reese in, and having moved from quarterbacks coach to court coordinator and quarterbacks coach needs to expand and, and be involved. And, and so this is his first, you know, kind of cycle of doing that. And, and we need to see him, you know, take charge there, I think. All right. Next question is from Jack Quinn at JQ 6008. Idea to boost college football playoff interest and he said it's obviously unrealistic move the semis to a saturday in mid-december he said 4 30 and 8 30 with an nfl game as the lead-in and have the title game at 6 40 same time as the super bowl on new year's day nobody wants to gather at 8 30 on a monday folks watch jeopardy what are your thoughts on his proposal to increase college football playoff interest um well it's not going to change until the next contract, which I think is 2025. Uh, and at that point, I think that they would add teams. I don't think that they would be looking to shift off of the dates that they play. 
Um, and I don't know that they're necessarily looking to desperately trying to drum up interest. I think the best thing that could happen to the college playoff is if they have more competitive games and if teams other than Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State are in every playoff. You know, if you can get some new teams in there, I think that generates a lot of interest. You know, the Alabama people at halftime are ordering food because they're going to go out and pick that up and the game's over, you know. Um, but if you have, you know, a new fan base that hasn't been there before, uh, then they're going to be glued to the TV set no matter what the score is. So I, I don't agree that those dates, I, I say nice try. Uh, but I think, again, we'll see teams added. We, and, and then that might give you a mid-December date. But uh, I, I don't think they're going to move the semis and the finals. Yeah, I, yeah. To kind of push back on some of those things, like Notre Dame is, or not Notre Dame, the college football playoff is not going to get an NFL lead in on a Saturday without having to go up against another NFL game because then the NFL wants to play in prime time. They're not just going to play at noon and help the NCAA out. That's not necessarily how that that works. And the NFL would crush the college football. Absolutely, and I, and I don't think they're going to break the New Year's Day tradition that is set up with with certain bowl games. So I think. And also, like, trying to, to make the – comparing the college football playoff championship to the Super Bowl seems to not necessarily make a ton of sense either because they're just not the same thing. Um, the I, do, I, do, I do buy the idea that Monday evening isn't ideal for the title game. Um, I, as a college football fan, I'm just used to that. It's been like that for years now. Um, and they're always going to have to work around the NFL, whatever the setup is. Um, but I, I agree with you that I think the biggest and most realistic changes are having more competitive games and less repetitive teams. Um, I think that could potentially help the TV ratings more. Um, I think an 18 playoff could help as it, when it came to that. And um, I think also there, there's more games. So you have the, you got to win three games. And so do people get maybe more attached to teams that are making a run? And if um, that's a way to bring people in, obviously, I would tend to believe the result will probably be the same. I don't know that we're going to like any format is going to solve the yeah. riddle of how to knock Alabama off its, off its perch um, or even Clemson. Um, but I, I do think we would get much better games if we have a four and a five and a three and a six playing in that first round. Um, and I think those would be compelling. And so it, I think too often people will say like, well, why do we need to see the number one team play against the number 18? Well, that's not really the point of expanding the playoff in my mind. Um, and w why not at least give the number eight team a chance? I think it'd be interesting. I don't think that team would rarely win, but I mean, that's how the NCAA basketball tournament is too. The six teams aren't beating the one seed, but there's plenty of compelling um, basketball games that come from that, that setup. Now, obviously I'm not <laughs> advocating for a 64 team uh, college football playoff, but I, I think there's room for expansion. And that would be um, in my mind, a, a reasonable way to, to get more people invested and, and uh, um, potentially have a better product. Next question is from at Rick Deerwolf one. Do you see a scenario where Marcus Freeman becomes head coach in waiting after two seasons at Notre Dame? I'm glad he added that after two seasons at Notre Dame. I've seen that question posed in my chats and they want to make Marcus Freeman, the coach in waiting now. And I think, you know what? He's had a good couple of weeks as defensive <laughs> coordinator on the recruiting trail, but I thought yeah, let's wait to see how this plays out a little bit. You know, we had Jack Swarbrick on our podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and 
you know, we talked to him about the coach and waiting concept and his thought is he doesn't like it out of the box, but, but if he was going to accept it, there needs to be two things. One is a very short period of time between when the head coach leave, you know, has announced his end date and then the, this new coach would take over. Right. And, um, you know, there has to be a finite time. You know, right now, Brian Kelly is signed through 2024. So when he, when Rick says two years from now, if Brian Kelly was going to hold himself to that, um, to that time frame, and, and it, Marcus Freeman or any of the Notre Dame assistant coaches, then I, I think it's realistic. I think that's short enough. I think ideally you'd want it only one year of that. Uh, but, uh, um, but I, I don't like the concept period. I think you need to open it up to everybody and see what's out there. There may be an incredible rising coach that would be better than whoever you're picking off the staff. Um, and I think, you know, you need to go after the best possible, just like Notre Dame with did with the defensive coordinator. You know, now they have, you know, one of the best defensive coordinators in the country and, and a guy with some experience and a guy that's an incredible recruiter. If they had just said, Oh, well, we're going to give it to, um, let's not say Mike Elston. Cause I think Mike Elston would have done a good job, but let's say they we're going to give it to Terry Joseph. I don't think Terry Joseph is ready to be a defensive coordinator at Notre Dame, maybe somewhere else, but not at Notre Dame. Yeah, I think the coaching waiting thing has certainly been a conversation and people have talked about it with potentially Clark Lee before Marcus Freeman. Um, and I think we've been pretty clear that we don't necessarily agree with that concept. It seems to limit yourself in the coaching market for not necessarily any potential windfall, in my opinion. I, I don't I don't know that it would make sense. Like, even if, like, Marcus Freeman, say you wanted him to be the next coach at Notre Dame, next head coach at Notre Dame, and in two years he has a job offer that he wants to go somewhere else to be that and you don't know when Brian Kelly is, is going to be done. What's stopping you from bringing Marcus Freeman back when, when, after he's at that other program and, and Brian Kelly is done, done that Notre Dame. So I just think that it's just, it's kind of a, a foolish concept in that. Like, I I don't know why the coach in waiting would ever agree to that job. I mean, cause there's nothing that's going to like prevent him from leaving anyways. He could just decide that he doesn't want to be the next coach and there's nothing really that's going to, hold that program to like following through on their plan to make him the next head coach. So it just seems like a, a concept that maybe makes sense in theory, but doesn't rarely ever works out that way in practicality. I know, like, I, I think I, I, I'm not sure why the obsession is there for it. Maybe it's because Ryan day has had success post urban Meyer and um, Lincoln Riley has had success post Bob Stoop. Yeah, but those weren't coaches in waiting. Those those guys, their, their coaches were gone, and then they, they decided at that moment that those coaches were the best per, pe- people to fill those roles. And I think that's how Notre Dame should should treat um, their coaching head coaching position when when that position becomes open. I, I don't I don't buy into the coach and waiting concept. And, and that's not to say anything about bad about Marcus Freeman. I think we all think Marcus Freeman has a bright future. But I think, like you mentioned at the, the outset, like let's calm down and see how Marcus Freeman does in the in the job of defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Besides landing one commitment and offering a bunch of kids, like he's do, he's doing his job right now, um, and there's reason to be excited. But 
I think uh, we need to see how things play out with him as that as a defensive quarter at Notre Dame first. Next question is from Eric Heiler at ES Heiler. Here's a hypothetical for offseason fodder. If the Notre Dame versus Alabama semifinal was played with was with just one change, the wide receiver unit switched teams. Who wins the game? That's a that's a good question because you know the best part about it is we wouldn't be proven wrong no matter what we said. <laughs> um, I would think Alabama would still win the game. I think it would be a closer game with Devontae Smith on Notre Dame's team. Uh, but I think uh, I think Alabama was still the better team. Uh, you know, the question I would have, could you pick some of Alabama's other receivers and put them over Notre Dame's receivers? Uh, you know, do you have to switch all the backups too? I, I still think Alabama wins the game with with switching the wide receivers, but that that definitely uh, was a that hurt my head thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I treat it as like the entire wide receiver depth chart on both teams would be flip flopped. Okay. The, the thing that I was trying to think my way through of is okay, would you have that for the whole season, or was it just like you found out before the college football playoff two weeks before like you're going to have the Alabama's receivers and you're going to have Notre Dame's receivers. Because I think that would matter. I think if Alabama had all season to develop a scheme around Notre Dame's wide receivers, I think Steve Sarkeesian would have found a way to make that offense work. It would have looked different than it was um, with Devontae Smith, but it still would have been effective, um, but maybe not as explosive. Um, whereas, like, if you had a great offensive line at Alabama, a better quarterback, and a better running back, and that's hard to say because Kyron Williams had a heck of a year, but Najee Harris was the best running back in the country yeah so i i i think it would be close um but i i think so like my, my thought my, i guess maybe it's a, my way out of it if they just did it like the week before the game and just switch teams and ian book could just throw it, spinning it yeah i'm spinning my answer um if ian book could just throw it to Devonte smith um and and mac jones on one week's notice had to throw to javon mckinley and ben skoranek i would i think notre dame would potentially win that game um, but otherwise, I, I think like if it was if Steve, Steve Sarkeesian had the chance to sort of build his offense around what those new receivers would, I, I still think Alabama would have won the game. So I don't. How, how's that for a non-answer? I don't. <laughs> I don't know. Um, the last I question we, during your answer. So, <laughs> well, last question, so you can get a nap in from Chino at D underscore Radio Guy. Had Notre Dame played their original schedule, would it have been more the same or less fun to watch? Having a chance at a conference championship was a nice twist this year. I still don't want to be in a conference, though. Um, so the, we're saying that they played their uh, regular schedule, but COVID was still a reality, I'm guessing. So there wouldn't have been fans in the stands because that would have made – life so much more exciting right is having fans there and to be able to go to green bay wisconsin and sit in lambeau field and watch a game there uh, but but let's pretend that it, they were able to play it and they played it through covid without any postponements i actually think um the acc schedule this year was more exciting because it was different um and I think it was kind of a one-time thing where it was different. It wouldn't be – if you did it again next year, it would be, oh, okay. Um, but 
But this year, it was really kind of cool, the whole conference dynamic. You know, I had to help pick the players of the week every week. And, you know, looking at the conference standings and trying to figure out the tiebreaker and who was all ACC. And um, all that was kind of fascinating to me this year. Um, I think Notre Dame would have liked to play its original schedule because they wouldn't have had to play Clemson twice. Right. And that may may have made Notre Dame the number two seed and it may have made Clemson out of the playoff if they hadn't had a chance to get a big win back at the end of the season. So uh, that that would have been interesting if it had played out that way. But other than, you know, if it's a COVID game and we're not going to those, you know, cool venues and stuff, I, I was fine with this change. I thought it was, was pretty unique. I feel like I'm bad at, at, at these hypothetical questions because just like the last – I don't know if it's annoying or a good thing. Like I, I always have another question to follow up. Like, okay. in this hypothetical, like I mentioned with when do you, when do you get those receivers in the previous question for this, if you're playing the original schedule, does that mean Trevor Lawrence is playing in the, in the Clemson game in the regular? No, it, it would be, Oh, well, we said, yeah, we said, let's, let's assume COVID is still in there. So it's still the same schedule. And, and this, it was the same time and Trevor Lawrence still would have had COVID um, yeah. And wouldn't have been able to play. So I, I think that would have potentially made that season more fun because Notre Dame goes through it undefeated, doesn't have to play in an ACC championship game, and then goes into the playoff. And I think just having maybe one deflating loss in the playoff versus a deflating loss in the conference championship and the playoff made that would made it, have made that season more fun. Um, but but I really I I liked it because we wouldn't if we didn't play the ACC schedule we wouldn't have had the UNC game. Um, and we wouldn't have had the Phil Dracovic revenge game. And those two games, I think, probably sort of outweighed the fun of, even though I wanted to see Notre Dame play Wisconsin, that was highly dependent on it being in Lambeau Field. That was the cool – obviously, Wisconsin's a good football program, but even they didn't play as, as good as people thought they might be this past season. So I don't know if that game would have been as exciting um, just in a, in, a, in a COVID sort of scenario. Um, so I guess um, – I would I would probably lean towards the ACC schedule um, as as being more fun, but I think it's probably overall pretty much a wash. I think there's gives and takes with without. I mean, I don't I don't like a Notre Dame season that doesn't include a USC game. I, I find that a rivalry fun, and so I, I. But I also know people like don't people don't like seeing Notre Dame play Navy, so not having to play Navy was. I, I didn't miss Navy. I don't think that needs to be an every year thing. I think you can still be loyal to your, you know, that commitment of decades ago of playing Navy. And I don't think it needs, especially now that the streak has been broken of playing them, right. I don't think you need to play them every year. You know, I think once every couple of years or once every three years, I think is enough. Yeah, I think there's lots of interesting things that Notre Dame could do with his schedule to sort of lean on its traditional rivals, but also um, expand who it's playing and make make its season schedule more interesting um, beyond what they're already doing. But I, overall, I, I, I'm fairly uh, – I usually get pretty excited about what Notre Dame's schedule presents on a yearly basis. I think there's obviously ups and downs, but I think especially moving forward, I mean, when they got Alabama on the schedule and Ohio State on the schedule in the future, that's going to be – there's going to be lots of big games coming. Notre they Dame's have on. Ohio State and Clemson both on the schedule in 2022 and 2023. Yep, uh, <laughs> I want to be there for those games. That's uh, that, let's make that a priority. And I want 
our fans, you know, not our fans. We don't have any. Fans. <laughs> no, no we'll, have our, we'll have our own pot of gold section. We we'll have a pot of gold fans. Um, and then they can be at the game. Um, and then Notre Dame fans as well. Uh, all right. Well, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave us a review. Uh, we'll be back as news sort of dictates. Um, I would guess maybe a podcast or two in February. Um, we'd like to do these even if there isn't necessarily breaking news. Uh, so, But until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame football offseason coverage needs. <laughs>